Is the U.S. Supreme Court about to impose a limited ban on medication abortion? The lead starts right now. The U.S. Supreme Court kicking the can down the road for now, pausing restrictions until Friday on access to the abortion pill. Restrictions put in place by a Texas judge. But what might happen after this two-day stay? And for the third time in a week, young people shot after making innocent mistakes, this time two cheerleaders after one of them mistook someone else's car for hers. I'm going to speak with her cheer program's owner, plus one day after one of the biggest media defamation settlements in the history of the universe, the CEO of Dominion will be here and we'll talk about whether his company took that historic $787.5 million check from Fox at the expense of truth and democracy. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start with breaking news in our health lead this afternoon. The U.S. Supreme Court handed down its decision in the blockbuster medication abortion case, temporarily extending access to the drug Mifepristone until Friday night. Justice Samuel Alito has set the new deadline, essentially buying the full court another two days to decide the future of the widely used abortion drug. Mifepristone is the first in a two-pill regimen used to terminate pregnancies and medication abortions in the first eight to ten weeks or so. It has been approved by the FDA for more than two decades. Mifepristone also frequently prescribed after miscarriages and for women experiencing menopause. But earlier this month, a Texas judge in Amarillo sided with anti-abortion activists and issued a sweeping ruling which in, part would, which in part would impose strict new restrictions on how mifepristone is prescribed and who can prescribe it and where patients can get it and at what point in their pregnancy women and girls are allowed to take the pill. Let's get straight to CNN's Jessica Schneider. And Jessica, this deadline's been moved to Friday. The justices are still considering the very same questions in this case. What options does the court have here? Yeah, Jake, this really just gives the Supreme Court more time for a definitive decision, something that they've sort of been delaying over the past few days. At the same time, though, this really adds to the uncertainty that we've been hearing about women, doctors, and even the drug makers here. So in part, the Supreme Court did give the Justice Department a little bit of what they were asking for here. In filings last night, the Solicitor General basically said, look, if you can't come up with a definitive decision, at least extend this stay for a few more days. And that is what Justice Alito did just minutes ago. And what this does is this gives the Supreme Court more time to decide whether to extend that pause on the lower court's ruling more definitively for weeks or potentially months or to let those restrictions go into effect. So sometime before midnight, Friday into Saturday, uh, the world will potentially know whether or not those restrictions will be in effect. If they do go into effect, if the Supreme Court doesn't extend the hold, it will be um, quite a change for the way that this abortion pill is administered. It would require that women um, at seven weeks pregnant are allowed to take the, dr- the drug, but no longer than that. It would also require that they see doctors in person and get the pill in person, as, as opposed to what exists now with the telehealth visits and getting the drug in the mail. So, Jake, once again, the Supreme Court sort of uh, making everyone stay on their toes as we wait for that Friday night deadline that was supposed to be today. So we'll see what the Supreme Court does, including whether they write on their eventual decision here. Jake. All right, Jessica Schneider, thanks so much. CNN senior Supreme Court analyst Joan Biskupic joins me. Uh, Joan, uh, just another two days here, um, Alito bought the court 
What's going on behind the scenes? Well, they're obviously divided because if they had the five votes, and that's what you need is five votes to either grant the Biden administration's request to put everything on hold and let the merits of the controversy play out while the pill is available just without any kind of new restrictions on it or to outright deny it. So neither side of this battle had the requisite five votes without some sort of protest from other justices. I imagine uh, a justice who wants justices might be trying to pick off votes, try to coalesce a majority. And you don't know what's being written in dissent. That's another thing that could be uh, costing time. When Justice Alito put the original deadline on, and we should make clear to, to viewers, Justice Alito is handling this only uh, because he happens to be the justice who oversees the Fifth Circuit Court right. of Appeals. Texas. It's not, yeah. yeah, it's just it, it just happenstance that the man who wrote the Dobbs opinion overturning all of constitutional abortion rights is now the one who's kind of the point that person in, I'm sorry, the Fifth Circuit, is that in Texas or is that the in Fifth Circuit over, the, no, the Fifth Circuit is the based area. in New Orleans, but it's over three right. states okay. that includes Texas, where right. the, the case originally came from, Jake. So clearly, they're not, they don't have a majority and if they have a narrow majority, somebody would want to somebody on the dissenting side may be trying to write. We don't know. All we know for sure is they were not able to resolve this. And as the Biden administration was making you know, one of its many pitches and its many filings to try to say you cannot. It was a, I was surprised at how forceful the Biden administration yeah. came in in its last filing, just saying you cannot believe what the kind of chaos you're going to cause if you do not postpone the effect of these lower court uh, orders. And as, as just yeah, one judge overruling the Food and e- Drug Administration. Exactly, exactly. And, and just so our audience knows also, this is not a case like what they resolved in June. June had to do with the constitutional right to abortion, you know, overturning nearly a half century of that. But this has to do with the authority of an agency that has expertise in a particular area over Food and Drug Administration to say to test drugs, to review, to look at what scientific determinations are necessary to find a drug safe and effective. And the lower court judges in this case have second guessed that. And the Biden administration says, if you allow that, you'll not only throw in doubt any kind of access to medication abortion, you will jeopardize the approval process for a host of other existing and new drugs. It's uh, crazy. I told you that they didn't have five votes to keep Mifepristone. I told you that. I said, who's the fifth vote? I don't even know that they have four. But, that's a, but wait a minute. I just want to make sure that's not even the question yet. Right. The question is just this procedural matter. So, OK, so I'll give you that. You're right that they don't even come close to even deciding in a temporary way rather than because they're eventually going to have to be, face the merits of this abortion drug. Yeah. too. All right, John Biskupik, to be continued. Thanks so much. Let's bring in. Democratic Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota, who's on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, Senator, what's your reaction to this temporary extension by the court? And how concerned are you that ultimately this court is going to allow this limited ban on, on access to mifepristone? Well, I really appreciated Joan's uh, analysis right there, Jake, because uh, in truth, we haven't learned anything new today about what they're going to do. They could be debating language in an order. It could be about a dissent. But one thing that hasn't changed, Jake, is that two judges on the Fifth Circuit and another in Amarillo 
Texas, three Trump-appointed judges, have basically threatened the availability of a safe drug, according to the American Medical Association, that is used in half the abortions in this country, and that's safe in 60 countries. And they basically have said this, the last two judges, hey, guess what? We know better than the FDA. It's gonna, you can maybe use it in seven weeks, but not 10 weeks. You can't get it in the mail now, and hey, you're not gonna be able to get it in pharmacies. That hasn't happened yet, because it stayed, but that's what they said. And as Joan has pointed out, this is an incredible step for the Supreme Court, and there's a lot of ways for them to get out of this with standing and other things, to say a judge can make this decision. What about if this Amarillo judge doesn't like birth control? What if the next thing is Lipitor? That's why you have seen the pharmaceutical companies, the American Medical Association, be so strong here. And so we go on to fight another day until Friday at midnight, but make no mistake, our Republican colleagues, for the most part, have been silent on this. And we are standing up, the Democratic Party, President Biden, for women's rights to say women have a right to make their own health care decisions and not politicians. And we don't want Ted Cruz in the waiting room. So that's, a, that's an image. Um, so if uh, the court ultimately allows this judge's restrictions to take effect, and we're not there yet, it might not happen, but if the court ultimately does do that, and I can easily see four justices who would probably vote that way, and maybe five. Um, you're on the Senate Judiciary Mini- Committee. Can Congress do anything? Well, the first thing we're doing, and you see how aggressive the Justice Department has been, is to vigorously fight this out in the courts. And I do not count out a successful result here because you have got a decision coming out of Washington state with 17 states that is very firm that says this is okay. You've got the risk of the entire system of approving drugs at stake here. So that's the first step and it is a major one and unfortunately we're not going to know the answer until midnight on Friday. Of course, Congress can get involved. Congress can pass a Women's Protection Act like that. That's what I would do. Uh, That's what uh, Democrats in the Senate want to do to protect not just um, medical abortion with medication, but also to make sure that we protect a woman's right to choose overall. The FDA part of this is much more major than just this one drug, and I think it's really important to understand that uh, and what we're facing here uh, with this assault on women's rights. There are no doubt judges out there, you raised this uh, earlier, who think that birth control pills uh, constitute the taking of a life uh, just because of of how they work. Um, Do you think that there's a real risk that if this is upheld, that could be next on the chopping block? I think anything could happen at this point if the Supreme Court takes this extreme view, which, by the way, is contrary to what they've done in other cases. Even Justice Scalia, not even a radical, was very clear about the limits for when you can bring cases like this. He talked about you can't bring a case like this only if there is a chance of a plaintiff being harmed. He said that's not enough. You either have to show you're harmed or there's a real chance you're harmed. The people that brought this case are saying, oh, hey, there could be stress involved for us because we don't agree with this drug. How about the women of this country? They're going to have to, what, get on a bus in Texas and go to Minnesota or go to Illinois? You talk about stress. You talk about real harm. That's what the justices are grappling with right now, whether it is simply a language in the order or how long a stay lasts or what it is. uh, This is an enormous issue for the precedent of the court, 
really for the trust the people have in the court um, and for uh, the women of America who've got to be able to get up in the morning and believe that they've got the same rights and not less rights than their moms or their grandmas did or people that have in 60 other countries have. Democratic Senator Amy Klobuchar from the great state of Minnesota, thank you so much. Appreciate it. A closer Thanks, look at what happens beyond Friday and how this case could set up a much larger battle. That's next. And we're back with more on our breaking news. The U.S. Supreme Court temporarily extending access to the abortion drug Mifepristone. That's until Friday night. This means that the full court is going to have another two days to decide the future of this widely used medication. I want to bring in Katie Watson. She's a professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Northwestern University. She's also an attorney. So, Professor, it does look as though it is possible that the court might ultimately allow these intense restrictions to be imposed, and it would make it very difficult and complicated for girls and women to have access to mifepristone. Um, what, what would be the result of that? What would that mean for women and girls? Well, it's extraordinary. Um, Twelve days ago, we had dueling rulings. We can't forget that the case out of Washington said the FDA had to preserve access in the 17 states that were plaintiffs in that litigation. So the Supreme Court has to resolve this uh, conflict. The impact, even if they say the Washington order can stand and the Texas order can stand, is that the federal drug um um, the FDA cannot regulate federally, that we would have a patchwork system saying that Mifepristone is safe in some states, but not in another, or they could uphold the Texas preliminary injunction and say nationwide Mifepristone can't be used. The impact is enormous. Um, a half, Approximately a half million women and girls used this drug every year uh, in recent years, and they depend on it. The Misoprostol only, the second drug regimen, does lead to more symptoms and side effects, takes longer, and is a little bit less effective. So if you're comparing risk profiles, that's why you want the two-drug gold standard. It's also the case that according to the CDC, about 1,200 women in the United States a year die from underlying causes from pregnancy and childbirth. So if you're looking at a risk profile and expecting those people will continue those pregnancies, you have much more health damage. Essentially, what this case is about is anti-abortion forces trying to control and eliminate abortion nationwide. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem. It's thrown medicine into chaos. The other thing these pills do is allow people to avoid clinic visits by using telemedicine and the mail. And so it increases access. The yeah. true risk of these pills that's being litigated is the risk of women's freedom to control their reproductive destiny. That's what they want to label to say, you know, uh, careful, this allows self-determination. So one last question. Um, Senator Klobuchar raised the spectrum of, uh, I mean, if this precedent goes forward, uh, judges could one judge somewhere could decide that they don't think the birth control pill uh, is safe and uh, mm -hmm. issue a, a nationwide ban or severe restrictions on that. Do, do you agree? It's absolutely possible. And that's why I take heart in the fact that the Supreme Court 
is needing extra time. My hope is that there are jurists who see uh, how this goes so far beyond abortion and the incredible threat to the federal regulatory system that this case poses. The idea that a single judge using this very strong standard, arbitrary and capricious, could say, I disagree with the FDA's scientific analysis and wreak havoc on drug approval generally. Let's hope the Supreme Court upholds the rule of law and sees that for the larger systemic issue that it is. Professor Katie Watson, thank you so much for your thoughts. Appreciate it. We're also getting new details in each of those shocking cases, three cases now of young people who showed up to places accidentally in the wrong place and were met by gunfire. And we're going to learn more about the cheerleaders shot in Texas when one of them accidentally opened a man's car door, the wrong car door. The head of the cheer program is here. Stay with us. International lead, people in three separate cases across the United States this week made everyday honest mistakes, momentarily confused about where they were, and that should be the end of those stories. They shouldn't be news. But in all three of these cases, innocent people were met with bullets. 20-year-old Kaylin Gillis was shot and killed Saturday after she and three others accidentally turned into the wrong driveway while looking for a friend's house in rural upstate New York. For this man to sit on his porch and fire at a car with no threat is just, just angers me so badly. And I, I just hope to God that he dies in jail. Ralph Yarl, a black teenager in Kansas City, was shot twice by a white homeowner after going to the wrong address. He was going to pick up his siblings. You just cannot wrap your head around it from being shot for doing absolutely nothing wrong. Thankfully, 16-year-old Ralph Yarl survived despite being shot in the head. The homeowner, Andrew Lester, today pleaded not guilty to one count of felony armed assault and one count of armed criminal action. Then there's the case in Texas, where two teenage cheerleaders were shot after one said she mistook the suspect's vehicle as her own in a supermarket parking lot. One of those cheerleaders remains hospitalized. And I was trying to apologize to him, and then he just started shooting at all of us. Some encouraging news in this Texas case. The teen is now up and FaceTiming friends, according to the manager of her cheer program. CNN's Ad Lavendera is covering this Texas story. And Ed, what, what do we know about the suspect in this case and, and what are we hearing from the victims? Well, investigators in Elgin, Texas, just outside of Austin, say the suspect is 25-year-old Pedro Teo Rodriguez Jr. And he's being held on $500,000 bond for a charge of deadly conduct, which is a third-degree felony. Court documents indicate that he was previously known to Elgin investigators uh, from previous law enforcement encounters. We've asked Elgin officials what exactly that means, but they would not add any more context. This shooting happened just after midnight Tuesday morning. These four cheerleaders drive together. They carpool from the Austin area to the Houston area three times a week for practice. So they had just gotten back. Heather Roth, one of the cheerleaders, gets out of the car and she starts getting in, in what she thought was her own car when she noticed a man in the passenger seat. So she returned back to uh, her friend's car. But by then, uh, police say the suspect had come around and that's when everyone around with these four cheerleaders say that that man just 
randomly opened fire on all four of them. Heather Roth uh, recounted to her cheerleading uh, squad yesterday during a vigil what that moment was like. As we're backing up, I see the guy get out of the passenger door and I roll my window down um, and I was trying to apologize to him. And then he, I just, halfway my window was down, he just threw his hands up and then he pulled out a gun and then he just started shooting at all of us. Heather Roth was treated and released there at the scene. Peyton Washington remains in a hospital, but as you mentioned, we were having encouraging news on there. She's been taken off of a ventilator, and she is now starting to talk with family and friends and even FaceTiming people from the hospital, as you mentioned. Jake? I love Andera uh, in Texas. Thanks so much. Uh, with us now, Lynn Shearer, who owns the gym, or we're both victims in this Texas case, uh, train. Uh, and Lynn, earlier you told CNN that Peyton Washington is doing better even though she lost her spleen and has damage to her pancreas and diaphragm. Uh, that was earlier today. How's she doing uh, this afternoon? Uh, yeah, that's correct. She's she's doing better. She's, um, she's still in ICU because they're concerned about the risk of infection, so they're pumping her with antibiotics, hoping to close her all up on later this week, maybe Friday, and then uh, she can kind of start the recovery process. She's uh, an elite athlete. She's a high school senior who's committed to Baylor University's acrobatics and tumbling team. Uh, obviously, we're glad that she's alive after this senseless act. But, but are you worried that this could throw off her future athleticism? Um, I, I, everybody's very hopeful for a full recovery, including the doctors. I think that she will fully recover. She's an incredibly strong um, athlete incredibly strong person. She's um, recovered from other things in the past. She's lived her whole life with only one lung and done amazing things athletically. So um, we all have, you know, hopes and feel and feel like she will have a full recovery and be able to attend Baylor in the fall and continue in the acro and tumbling sport. I'll certainly be praying for that. The, the other cheerleader who was shot, Heather Roth, she said she was trying to apologize to the man for accidentally getting into the wrong car when he got out of the passenger door, now Roth is still planning to compete in the world championships this weekend in Orlando. That, that shows incredible resilience. Um, how's she doing? Has she, it's, I mean, this is such a traumatic event. The girls are all completely traumatized. Physically, the rest of them are doing well, except for Peyton. Um, this, this competition this weekend is the end of their all-star career. It's the biggest competition of the season. And for them, it's the last time for them to compete. So there's almost nothing that would keep them from competing this weekend. It's going to be a much tougher road now without Peyton. Um, we're going to do the best we can. And um, I don't think there's much that would keep those girls from being there this weekend. As a, as a bigger picture issue here, we've seen young people in the last week uh, all over the country just accidentally in the wrong place making very human mistakes. I've driven into the wrong driveway. I've knocked on the wrong door. I've accidentally uh, gotten into the wrong car. I've done all those things. And yet these, these kids are, are being shot in New, in New York, even killed for this. What do you, what do you make of this yeah, all? Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I, I don't make anything good of it. That's for sure. It's, it's not a, it's not a good sign of where we're headed by any means. It's, it's sad and it's unfortunate and um, it's clearly a, 
a case of they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. There was no altercation whatsoever um, from the girls. There was no words spoken. It was clearly an innocent, you know, mistake, like you said. So it's it's frustrating. It's uh, it's going to affect them probably for the rest of their life. So it's I, I don't even know what else to say. It's just it's it's incredibly unbelievable. Yeah, it just makes you wonder. I've said this so many times on the show. The adults of this nation are failing the children of this nation. I wish I could stop saying that, but it just keeps getting worse. Lynn Shearer, thank you so much. Thoughts and prayers with you and your entire community. Thank you. Coming up next, the CEO of Dominion Voting Systems is here. We'll get his response to those who ask, why not make that settlement with Fox include on-air apologies for all those lies told on TV about the 2020 election that did such damage to this nation. Stay with us. In our money lead today, Fox is $787.5 million poorer. And the company's problems are not going to stop there. As CNN's Danny Friedman reports for us now, even after Fox settled its lawsuit with Dominion Voting Systems, it is still entangled in several other cases. After a historic settlement for Dominion Voting Systems, the truth matters. Lies have consequences. The potential consequences of another defamation case loom on the horizon for Fox News. Even before Dominion filed its $1.6 billion lawsuit saying Fox knowingly lied about its voting machines, Smartmatic, a different voting technology company, filed a similar suit. This one seeking $2.7 billion in damages, accusing Fox News, several of its hosts, and Trump attorney Rudy Giuliani of falsely saying Smartmatic rigged the 2020 election. I have spoken with a few whistleblowers myself this weekend, and one source who is an IT specialist told me that he knows the, the software and uh, specifically advised people in Texas, officials in Texas, not to use it. And yet he was overruled. The company also argued Fox falsely claimed Smartmatic was linked to former Venezuela president Hugo Chavez. Smartmatic agreed to create such a system and produce the software and hardware that accomplished the result for President Chavez. After the Smartmatic electrical electoral management system was put in place, he closely observed several elections where the results were manipulated using the Smartmatic software. Fox denies wrongdoing, saying they were just covering the news, an argument the Dominion judge threw out. Smartmatic's case is currently still in the discovery phase at this time. Meanwhile, CNN has learned exclusive new details about how yesterday's $787 million Dominion settlement came to be. Sources tell CNN's Oliver Darcy and Marshall Cohen Fox and Dominion couldn't lock in a deal themselves over the weekend, so they called veteran mediator Jerry Roscoe. Roscoe, who's helped resolve wartime disputes in the Balkans, was on a cruise in Europe on Sunday when he was brought in a day before the trial was set to begin. After several Zoom meetings and phone calls, the deal was finalized around 2 Tuesday afternoon and signed just minutes before the judge announced the resolution in open court. Now, Jake, Smartmatic and Fox both released statements in the past 24 hours basically saying they're looking forward to litigation and to a potential trial on their case in 2025. So you can imagine we're probably going to be having the same conversations about some of the same conspiracy theories for the next two years. 
Jake. All right, Danny Freeman, thanks so much. Let's bring in the CEO of Dominion Voting Systems, John Poulos. Uh, John, thanks so much uh, for joining us. I want to uh, read you some of what Fox issued as a statement after the deal. Uh, they wrote, um, we acknowledge the court's rulings finding certain claims about Dominion to be false. I want to ask you about that in a second. But first, they, they go on to say, this settlement reflects Fox's continued commitment to the highest journalistic standards, unquote. Is that how you see the settlement, as an example of Fox's commitment to the highest level of journalistic standards? Uh, Thanks for having me on. Um, For us at Dominion, this has always been about getting the truth out uh, and holding the eight different entities that have defamed us to account. Um, The fact that the world knows all the details behind that uh, and behind what happened in particular with Fox Corp and Fox News um, and it did come out in our motion for summary judgment, um, uh, meant, that, meant for us that we had accomplished that. The only remaining item for us was uh, for the jury to set the, uh, the amount and, and the liability. Um, and ultimately, um, a, a lot of people don't appreciate what goes into a trial. Uh, our, we have a lot of employees uh, that have experienced trauma, uh, and we have six more trials um, and to go, and I suspect that uh, they will go all the way to a jury verdict, mm-hmm. uh, all other six. And that's something that um, we don't take lightly. We've asked a lot of our election officials uh, to testify um, for no personal gain of their own. Um, and frankly, um, they all said yes. Everyone we had asked said yes. Uh, and that's not an easy thing for us um, to ask of. And it's not something we did lightly, um, especially considering we have six more to go. Right. Uh, you mentioned all the traumatized employees uh, of uh, Dominion. I don't, I don't doubt it for a second. Um, what's going to happen with them? Obviously, the private equity managers that own Dominion are going to get a lot of money. Uh, obviously, those lawyers are going to get a lot of money. I imagine a, a third or so. That's usually how these things go. What's going to happen with those employees you say are traumatized? Are they going to get any of this huge settlement? Uh, <clears throat> those are terrible assumptions, Jake. Um, our partners at Staple Street Capital have been nothing other than unconditionally supportive of us. The only question um, that they really ever asked to me uh, and our employees during this time was how they could help. Uh, in the early days, um, it was I, I reached out to them and asked them for help assembling the legal team. So you bring up the legal team. We had, um, I, I think, uh, the, assembled the best group of lawyers uh, that anyone really could ever hope for. And, and I think it showed in the judge's remarks the other day. Um, and, uh, as far as our employees, absolutely. Uh, we have a number of employees that are shareholders, um, and our commitment has always been to our shareholders. Absolutely. Every one of our employees, uh, will benefit from this. Um, and our customers will benefit from this, from the fact that we have longevity as a company. Mm -hmm. You said in the press conference right after the settlement was announced that Fox had apologized for telling those election lines. They, they, they didn't apologize. They, said in their statement that they acknowledge that the court's ruling finds certain claims about Dominion to be false. They don't even acknowledge that those false statements are theirs, and they didn't have to acknowledge any of this on air. How did that work? Did you want them to go on air and apologize and say, we misled you, and they said, well, how about we give you $100 million more, and and we don't have to do that? I mean, where was the negotiation on making sure that their viewers— who are the ones that believe these lies. CNN's viewers don't believe these lies. Uh, ABC, NBC, CBS, PBS, MSNBC. 
They don't believe the lies. It's Fox viewers believe these lies. Um, why not get them to acknowledge it? Uh, I suppose for myself, I've not really thought through, um, and, and I think we probably disagree on the effect of what an apology really uh, would mean for their viewers. Um, viewers turn to their trusted media sources, whatever the channel is. Um, and for us, it was about accountability. Um, and we, if anything, uh, we wanted this settlement, uh, and the dollars obviously are very significant for any entity, including Fox. It's huge. Um, yeah. Uh, to be, it's, it's, it's huge. And I think lies have consequences, as Justin Nelson in that press release uh, that you played at the, at the beginning of the spot here. Um, but for any media company, uh, Jake, I'm sure you included, the next time you decide to make uh, a statement that, you're, that your fact checkers are telling you is not true, um, you know, you should probably apologize. But, if you do it two days in a row, but that doesn't you should happen. probably apologize. But journalists, you, journalists don't but do, do that. I'm, I'm, I'm like, look, every journalist makes mistakes. I mean, that is just, that happens. But, but the kind of deception that you and your lawyers laid out, multiple lies over and over over the course of months, uh, text messages and, and emails suggesting that they knew that the guests were spewing lies. They knew that that some of their own hosts, uh, like Maria Bartiromo, were saying things that were not true, that they did not believe to be true. Um, so it's not, what Fox, the settlement they paid, that has nothing to do with what I do for a living. When, when I make a mistake, I go on air, I apologize. I, uh, you know, it happens. Everybody makes mistakes. This is not a mistake. This is malice. This is lying to the American people. And, and honestly, John, Fox barely covered this on their website yesterday. We found one article buried deep on their website about the settlement. It does not mention the 787.5 historic million-dollar amount. Um, you said this morning you hope that Fox is going to learn the lesson and start telling the truth. Have you seen any evidence that they're going to start telling the truth? Uh, well, well, Jake, you've said a, a number of things there. Um, to me, the fact that you know all these facts uh, has meant that we reached one part of our goal. Uh, that's very important for us, for our employees, um, and for our customers. Um, and the fact that everyone in the world knows these facts is a testament to the fact that we had the support uh, to take this through with our team uh, all the way to summary judgment. Um, we also felt that the, the amount of money uh, that was paid uh, speaks for itself. Um, you, you, we, we may disagree, we may agree to disagree on, on what an apology uh, would actually do. Uh, I'm more concerned about the next uh, instance on any channel. Um, my hope is that media tells the truth. We have a very high standard um, for individuals to sue media companies for defamation. In my opinion, it's exactly the way it should be. It should be a hype standard. I think that media you know, can be expected once in a while to get things wrong um, and then correct it. Uh, in in pursuit of the truth, uh, but this is something different. This was twenty statements over two and a half months. Right. Um, this was not a case of them not knowing the truth, uh, and that is laid out very very clearly in the motion for summary judgment, um, and in the judge's words, uh, you know, I quote it: uh, "It's crystal clear um, that was, Dominion did not rig the yeah, twenty twenty election." Of course they didn't. Of course you didn't. And neither did Smartmatic. Of, of course the Italians. Did. I mean, it's so nonsensical. All of it. Uh, and yet they completely abdicated whatever pretense of journalism they ever had. Uh, And it really, honestly, this has nothing to do with what every other news network does. This has to do with Fox and Newsmax and OANN. 
Jake, uh, you say that it's, of course we did, and, and, and that's great that you never believed it. I can tell you that there is a large uh, percent of the population that did believe it because they tune in to Fox as their right. trusted news source. But that's my question. Uh, Why is, not force okay. them to tell all those people, all those misled Americans, which polls indicate millions of them still believe this nonsense. Why not force them to say, we shouldn't have done that. That was false. You have been misled. Joe Biden actually won. Dominion and Smartmatic and all that stuff was operating fine. Why not force them to do that? Was, was it just like, we'll give you $200 million more if you don't force us to do it? Because you could have forced them to do it. Uh, well, A, the defamation, uh, the, the, the defamation part of the law does, is really not built around apologies. Uh, it is built to um, compensate for damage. And I can tell you, uh, we, we had a company-wide call yesterday, and, and the unanimous consent in our company is if we could trade this all in and go back in time and have our company reputation back, we would do so exactly. every single time. Exactly. That's, but that's my point. What, what, is the, what are your plans for the company? I mean, can you continue? There are still these people out there, elections officials, who are refusing to use certain software. There are still... Uh, individuals who were associated with Donald Trump uh, still out there, like saying that these electronic machines, Dominion, Smartmatic, et cetera, cannot be trusted. Uh, I mean, it's it, this lie persists. Uh, well, to the first part of the question, we still have six more parties uh, in litigation, and we intend um, to take it right to the very end um, and to hold them accountable. In terms of our election officials, our technology features voter verified paper ballots. Um, and we continue, as long as our, as well as our election officials, continue to urge voters everywhere uh, of all political leanings to reach out to their local election officials and learn about how their elections are actually run. All right. Well, John, uh, you guys got done dirty uh, by Fox and uh, the MAGA ecosphere, media ecosphere, and and it sucks that it happened to you. Um, thanks so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Thanks very much, Jake. In the world lead, comments from the U.S. government's Afghanistan watchdog, John Sopko, today before Congress. Unfortunately, as I sit here today, I cannot assure this committee or the American taxpayer we are not currently funding the Taliban. I haven't seen a starving Taliban fighter on TV. They all seem to be fat, dumb, and happy. I see a lot of starving Afghan children on TV. Now, while Mr. Sopko agreed that humanitarian aid to the embattled country is important, he cautioned that this money risks falling into Taliban hands. CNN's Salma Abdelaziz brings us now stories of Afghans currently suffering under the Taliban's oppressive regime. He was tortured by the Taliban, he says, just for reporting the truth. I was thinking of death every moment. I thought, this is the last day of my life, he says. Last December, 30 Taliban fighters stormed journalist Sabula Nouri's home in the Afghan city of Talukan. The men beat him over and over with the butt of their rifles, then arrested him, allegedly for publishing anti-Taliban propaganda. I told them I'm a journalist. I report the truth, whether that's against the Taliban or anyone else. But they wouldn't stop, he says. They said, call your mother so she can hear you scream. 
As the Taliban seized control in the summer of 2021, thousands of terrified families flocked to the Kabul airport, desperate to escape what they knew of the group's barbaric rule. But the Taliban vowed reform, pledging to be more progressive than their last time in power. Instead, the group quickly fell back on its old playbook, rule by fear, repress without mercy. The group ordered judges to fully impose its extremist interpretation of Islamic law. That includes public executions, floggings, and amputations. And in December, it carried out the first known public execution. An alleged murderer was shot three times in a public square. And over the course of just two months, the Taliban carried out floggings against more than 180 men, women, and children, according to the UN. Like this one, the secretly recorded video shows a Taliban militant flogging a man in a football stadium. Other accused criminals await their punishment with onlookers in the stands. And any perceived dissent against their rule is met with brutality. Zafri agreed to speak to CNN on condition of anonymity. He was imprisoned by the group for allegedly joining an anti-Taliban military alliance, a charge he denies. They shoved a water pipe down my throat. They tied a bag around my head, he says. They sat on my belly and ordered me to confess that I'm a member of the resistance forces. After four months of torture in detention, Zafri was released. He now lives in hiding. His repeated attempts to flee Afghanistan have failed. Countless Afghans have attempted the same, risking their lives to find safety away from their brutalized homeland, a perilous journey that has claimed many lives. Like that of Afghan female journalist Turpakai Amar Khal. She was among more than 60 migrants who drowned at sea when their ship sank off the coast of Italy. Fortunately, Nouri has made it out alive with his family after his release. Now a refugee in Pakistan, he still lives in fear. I'm not safe in Pakistan, he says. Anything can happen here. Anything. But those left behind remain hopeful that the international community will hear their pleas, even if raising their voice means risking their lives. Jake, it's just important for me to acknowledge the bravery of those men who came forward and spoke to us. We approached several people that were afraid of repression, as you can imagine, under the hands of of the Taliban just for speaking out. And that here is the impact of their rule. Civil society has essentially been erased by Taliban rules. Think of the most recent ruling that women working for the United Nations couldn't go into the offices, forcing the United Nations to say everybody has to stay behind. And for those still there, there's very little hope for a future, Jake. Salma Abdelaziz, thank you so much. Coming up next, today's stunning development uh, from the U.S. Supreme Court. The justice is delaying uh, their own inevitable decision uh, for another two days on the matter of abortion pills and access to mifepristone. Uh, the legal and medical confusion this creates. That's ahead. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, a warning ahead of what is already shaping up to be a record-breaking summer travel season. Will there be enough pilots to fly your plane? The answer's up in the air. Plus, 
A close call near Ukraine's front lines as a missile strike narrowly misses a CNN crew, the new onslaught of Russian, onslaught of Russian attacks, and how Ukraine is trying to defend itself. Leading this hour, the Supreme Court weighs in by kicking the can down the road, the high court temporarily extending access to an abortion drug until 11.59 p.m. Friday night. Women and girls and physicians across the U.S. remain in limbo, unsure if the strict new restrictions will severely limit the use of mifepristone moving forward, not just used for medication abortion, also used for women who experience miscarriages or women who are going through menopause. CNN's justice correspondent Jessica Schneider joins us now live. So, Jessica, what happens next? Well, Jake, we're really now in a holding pattern yet again until the Supreme Court issues what will likely be a more definitive decision before late Friday. That continues to mean uncertainty for women, doctors, and even drug manufacturers. But the good news, I guess, for them is that it does keep everything status quo when it comes to the availability of the abortion drug mifepristone. So the abortion pill will, in fact, continue to be fully available while the Supreme Court continues to weigh this decision. And come Friday night, we'll know if the Supreme Court is going to extend that pause on the lower court ruling even further, which would mean restrictions would not go into effect while the appeals process plays out. Or, of course, the Supreme Court could decide to let some of the restrictions go into effect. Or finally, the Supreme Court could really decide by Friday night to let all of those restrictions go into effect. That would include no more mailing of the pill, no more telehealth visits to get access to the pill, and no availability for the pill past seven weeks of pregnancy. So, Jake, right now the justices are likely conferring and writing, and we will find out more about a definitive decision likely sometime on Friday. Jake? Let's bring in CNN Supreme Court reporter Ariane DeVogue. Ariane, uh, what do we know about what's happening behind the scenes at the high court right now and, and what will happen over the next two days, presumably until the deadline? Right, Jake. Someone wanted more time here. This is a play for time. And maybe it's because when the Biden administration and the manufacturers came to court in the last couple of days with a lot of legal briefs, they really put it on strong that there would be chaos unless if these lower court orders aren't blocked. For instance, the generic drug that takes place, that takes care of two thirds of these abortion medication drugs that would go on hold. Right. It wouldn't be able to be mailed. Uh, You could only take it seven weeks into pregnancy. Even the label changes could uh, take months. That would be a lot of chaos. The court, as it's looking at this now, they may see this as less as an abortion case and more of, did the FDA have the authority to do what it did? But then they might think, do judges, uh, can judges play doctors here? Do they have a better opinion than the doctors? Finally, they all know that this comes almost a year after they decided Roe v. Wade. In that decision, they allowed uh, the issue to go back to the states. But here, if these lower court opinions do go into effect, that would mean that even in states that allow abortion, uh, it could be severely restricted. That could give uh, justices like Justice Brett Kavanaugh, Chief Justice uh, John Roberts, that could give them pause. They're all meeting Friday morning behind closed doors. Uh, for their regular meeting. They're likely to talk about this again and then finally issue this opinion. Ariane, is there a chance that the court could kick the can down the road again uh, if they need more time to deliberate? 
Here's what happens sometimes. Sometimes someone writes something really fiery and they're like, wait a minute, do we really need this? And sometimes they just want to have a little bit more space. That could be occurring. There are so many questions about what's going on uh, behind the scenes. It's really hard to tell. All we know right now is somebody definitely wanted more time here. All right, Ariane DeVogue and Jessica Schneider, thanks so much. Let's bring in Dr. Jessica Shepard. She's an OBGYN in Texas. And Dr. Shepard, um, what does this temporary pause mean for doctors and patients? Yeah, you know, being based in Dallas, Texas here, a state where, again, abortion is illegal, we're talking about, as we've talked about before, the states which can still have access to surgical and medical abortions in this case. And medical abortions actually are still legal in a lot of different states, and mifepristone is one of those two-pill regimens that is needed for a safe and reliable non-surgical mean of an abortion. So you have performed surgical abortions in the past. You also have prescribed abortion medications in the past, but because Texas uh, has a, uh, a ban on any abortions after about six weeks, a ban that went into effect in 2021, you no longer do either of those because it's against the law. What kind of impact has that had on women and girls uh, who uh, might want to access this care? One word that we've heard significantly through this segment alone is chaos. And the chaos not only comes in the community of women who are needing this access for the decision that they want to make with their body, but also in the medical aspect and for the pharma, from the pharmacy perspective, because as you stated before, when we look at mifeprostone and mesoprostol, both of those medications can be used in different instances, but now we are seeing the pushback even in prescription of these medications of getting it released. And I've even had that happen for patients that need it for another type of procedure, but getting the pushback from pharmacy just to get access to the medication. So we, we talked to Professor Katie Watson in the last hour, in the previous hour, and she said um, that mifeprostol, the, the other pill in the regimen, could be taken alone, but actually has uh, more um, risks uh, being taken in a higher dose, taking two of those instead of mifepristone and then mifepristol. Uh, tell us about those higher risks. Now, when you look at actually both of the medications, and this is why we're looking at this specific case and why it's so important that the FDA does the work that they do, is because they're really doing rigorous research when we look at actual data, looking at side effects and possible complications. So when we actually look at both of those medications together, we know that the complication rate is significantly low, which is why we've had access to this for medical abortions for more than 20 years. Now, if you look at both of the drugs, mesoprostol is the one that you asked about. Now, when we look at complications in a high dose, that can mean anything such as significant cramping, discomfort, possible bleeding. But when we look at or complications, rather, that are going to significantly impact the life of a woman, those are so low. And this is why we've been able to use this medication very safely and effectively for such a long time. Do you worry, beyond the, the issue of abortion and how people feel about that, um, do you worry about the precedent that could be set uh, if the Supreme Court decides it's okay for judges to just put their wisdom above that of the Food and Drug Administration? Now, this case is a challenge to how we practice medicine as healthcare providers because 
We know what we're doing based on research and how we have been able to treat patients for decades and centuries. And then also looking at the FDA and what they are allowed to do. This is, again, going against the expert judgment from two different perspectives, FDA looking at medication and safety and efficacy, and also physicians being able to provide their patients confidentially and in the safety of an exam room what is best for that patient at that time. Dr. Jessica Shepard in Dallas, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, new Russian missile strikes in Ukraine and a close call for a CNN crew near the front lines, how Ukraine's military is trying to fight back. Plus, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis uh, now expanding the ban in schools of discussions of sexual orientation and gender identity. It was K through three, third grade. Now it's proposed all the way through the 12th grade. Stay with us. Off to Ukraine in our world lead today. Russia fired at least 60 missiles into Ukraine overnight, especially in and around the beleaguered eastern city of Bakhmut. That's according to the Ukrainian military. And further south, an onslaught of drone attacks. CNN's Nick Peyton Walsh is in southeastern Ukraine, where he and his team narrowly escaped a missile strike to bring you this report. Close to Ukraine's imminent counteroffensive in the southeast, where Russia has long been brutalizing, pain is commonplace and the damage often everywhere and indiscriminate. The quiet is a blessing that rarely lasts. We're warned of a missile strike incoming and leave. Holy we can feel the pressure wave Nat, can of the blast Nat, can just behind me? our armoured car. Right behind us. Nat, can you hear me? Natalie Gajon, our producer, is in our second vehicle just past the smoke Nat, with driver Igor Maglic and isn't answering. Nat, can you hear me? The missile landed right between our cars. Nat, can you hear me? Nat, can you hear me? For 10 seconds, we have no idea if they are alive. Hey, vehicle, she just said something. Nat, can you hear me? Nick, yes, I can hear you. That's them. Are you guys okay? Yes, We're fine, just leave. Us. Drive out the way we left. We leave together. For so many, that choice of leaving is something imaginary that happens above ground. The only power and water in town are down here. Well, life underground here has been hard for quite some time, but it will get harder when the counter-offensive begins pushing certainly in this direction. If there is space for laughter, it's from this. A screechy slapstick Soviet-era comedy about a drunken goofball briefly bending the thick-set grimaces here. Guardian angels seem here to flit by in a town where 50 died in the war and 200 were injured. Safety is just a word here, and rubble is a place. 
Now, Jake, that town of Orakiv is pretty close to the front lines, essentially. And today, uh, locals told us they heard small arms fire on its outskirts. Essentially, they think Russian troops probing towards Ukrainian positions as Ukraine seems to be mounting forces for a counteroffensive. Long-awaited, long-Ukraine, sorry, long-NATO supplied and bolstered and planned. And so I think there are concerns here that the bombardment you saw there, which we briefly experienced, which locals have been enduring for months, May intensify as that potential move by Ukraine pushes forwards. Jake. All right, Nick Payton Walsh. Uh, so glad you and your team are okay in Zaporizhia. Appreciate it. Back on Capitol Hill, House lawmakers heard from victims of Russia's wartime atrocities. Take a listen to this 57-year-old Ukrainian woman from Kherson speaking through a translator. In January of this year, they came for me. And then they took me to their torture chamber and kept me there uh, for five days. Forced me to undress, cutting my body with a knife and threatening to rape and kill me. Also forced me to dig my own grave. Just one of so many stories like that. Joining us now, Ukraine's Prosecutor General Andrei Kostin. Uh, So good to have you here, Prosecutor General. So we just heard one of the 80,000 reported war crimes by your office's count, including torture, murder, rape, the forced deportation of so many Ukrainian children to Russia. You said today you finished cases about half of the 310 perpetrators of the crimes. Unfortunately, we're hearing about new cases every day. You know CNN has has teams on the ground in Ukraine. How do you even keep up with the caseload? Of course, we prioritize our work. And for us, the priority are cases where people, civilians, were killed, injured, or ill-treated in different manner when they have been victims of harm, sexual, and any other type of attack. And uh, prioritizing these cases, of course, we, the, the most challenging for us is to identify the perpetrators because many of them are hiding their faces. But for cases we have already finished, we not only identified the perpetrators, but we also collected evidences that they initially committed these war crimes. And hundreds and thousands of cases are ongoing. Mm -hmm. And this is our primary job, to deliver justice to Ukrainians in our national system, while we have already great results in international level. Right. So you met with U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland on Monday of this week, and he announced the U.S. Justice Department would detail a prosecutor to The Hague uh, to assist you in investigating these Russian war crimes uh, in Ukraine. Um, What else do you need from the United States, your office? We have a unique uh, uh, cooperation with the office of uh, Attorney Merrick Garland, and uh, the uh, deployment of the prosecutor to the International Center for the Prosecution of the Crime of Aggression into The Hague, who will work shoulder to shoulder with Ukrainian and other international prosecutors, is a clear sign, clear example of our support uh, with regard to making highest Russian political and military leadership accountable for the crime of aggression, the leadership crime. Because if crime of aggression would not have been committed, there would be no 80,000 incidents of other war crimes. So there's a warrant out for Putin's arrest for the deportation of the Ukrainian children. Do you think he will ever face any accountability? We all know that he will face accountability. We will do anything possible. And our task as lawyers is to prepare 
everything to prepare cases, to collect evidences, and to prepare a legal framework. It's not our... Uh, we have no time, actually, to think about the future, whether we will capture him or not. But I will uh, give you an example of our senior advisors from all over the world who started as young prosecutors in cases, in tribunals mm -hmm. for future war criminals in, uh, in the conflicts of uh, former Yugoslavia territories. They never imagined that people like Milosevic and Karadzic would be in the dock of international tribunals when they started their work. But at the end of the day, both of them were tried and prosecuted. So our aim, together with the International Criminal Court, is to go, uh, to go ahead not only against Putin, but also against other high-ranking officials who are, who are responsible for the thousands of war crimes committed in Ukraine. I want to turn to Ukraine's current battlefield needs. Um, I spoke uh, with the UK Defense Minister, uh, Ben Wallace. Uh, here's a, a little bit of what he told me. Does Ukraine have what it needs for the counteroffensive? And why isn't the UK providing Ukraine with typhoon jets right now as they've requested? Well, I think, first of all, uh, Ukraine is getting ready uh, and is receiving the supplies that it needs, uh, whether that is artillery shells or whether that is specialist anti-air equipment. A huge amount has been donated over the last year, and that is building to a significant capability. He says Ukraine is receiving the supplies that it needs. Are you receiving everything you need? I don't think that anyone in Ukraine can say that we receive everything we need. We understand that we need more and we need uh, it quicker in order to liberate our territory as soon as possible because it will save lives of our people because every day more people are killed. And not only, actually, we're talking about civilians. Let's also think about our servicemen because they are protecting our country. They're yeah. defending our country. But... Uh, they are victims of the crime of aggression committed by Russian Federation. And as quick as we liberate our territory, more lives will be saved. Not only civilians, but servicemen. Because many of these servicemen, they are civilians right. yesterday. Right. And it's about their families and their lives. So we are grateful for any assistance we have. But I think that we need more and quicker. All right, Ukrainian Prosecutor General Andre Kostin, thank you so much. It's always an honor to have you here. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. Coming up, Mr. DeSantis goes to Washington, but it doesn't look like the trip paid off, at least not as far as Donald Trump says. Does the Florida governor have a likability problem? That's next. In our politics lead, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis made a rare appearance on Capitol Hill for a meet and greet with House Republicans as he ramps up an expected presidential campaign. That visit resulted in four Sunshine State lawmakers publicly declaring their 2024 support for Donald Trump. Ouch. CNN Steve Contorno joins us now live from St. Petersburg, Florida. Uh, uh, Steve, um, the Politico headline that Donald Trump was nice enough to, to email out uh, is pretty vicious. It says, DeSantis is in a rut. His trek to D.C. didn't help. I want to thank the, the Trump campaign for sending that. I would have missed it otherwise. You have covered DeSantis for years. What's going on? 
Jake, Ron DeSantis, even though he was a member of Congress for almost six years and has been Florida's governor for almost five, he doesn't have much of a relationship with Florida's congressional delegation. It's something he's actually almost bragged about at, at times. In his book, he noted he wasn't in D.C. to socialize. I talked to one of his former colleagues, uh, David Jolly. He was a House uh, representative from Florida, also Republican. He said, quote, I don't remember a single Florida delegation meeting he attended. We had lunch once a month just to casually, just to catch up. I'm not sure he ever attended a single one. He was not a team player. It doesn't surprise me that he doesn't have much loyalty in the delegation. And Trump, what he has done, has exposed this chasm, and he made a concerted effort to pick up support among these Florida Republicans early and raise this question, why are these Republicans endorsing Trump over their home state governor? And DeSantis's team recognized that this was going to be trouble for him. They started scrambling, trying to get some of these people to at least wait until DeSantis had announced before they made an endorsement. Instead, several of these people have come out since those phone calls were made and endorsed Donald Trump, Jake. Hmm. Um, Also, on the policy front, DeSantis uh, is locked in this battle with Disney. And that all started with that law that banned uh, discussion of sexuality and gender in grades kindergarten through through third grade. Today, uh, the state of Florida said that they're going to expand that ban up up to senior year in high school. That's right, Jake. Uh, The State Board of Education made today and made good on this promise to expand this law all the way through high school. Uh, Governor DeSantis was in South Carolina today where he touched on that that action as well as the the Disney uh, feud. Take a listen to what he said. Gender ideology has no place in our K-12 school system, and we've made that very, very clear. It is wrong for a teacher to tell a student that they may have been born in the wrong body or that their gender is a choice. And so we don't let that happen in Florida. And if Disney objects to that, well, so be it. Now, DeSantis has also promised to do a whole bunch of retribution against Disney as well. He even floated the idea, Jake, of potentially building a prison next door to Disney's theme park. Right. Steve Contorno in St. Petersburg, Florida. Uh, Thanks so much. Let's discuss with my august uh, panel. So dozens of House Republicans have already lined up behind Donald Trump, including eight from Florida, Mm -hmm. including one just a few hours ago. I think Vern Buchanan, maybe it was. Um, Mm -hmm. And for doing so this week on this big trip of DeSantis to meet with a Capitol Hill Republican. So what's going on? We've said often that it's uh, even with Trump indictment, even after January 6th, that uh, there were multiple indications that Trump still had a grip on the party. But on the DeSantis side, what I think is interesting is things like this ongoing fight with Disney. You saw members of Congress, Republican members of Congress, also question whether or not that was going to be effective. It's almost like you have this collision of sort of leaning into these culture wars that we did see galvanize some of uh, uh, Trump's base. Um, But that kind of running head on to sort of the traditional pro-business values as well of the Republican Party. But, you know, it's not just today. This week, we've seen that ongoing battle with DeSantis and Disney. Um, You know, you've seen some Republican members of Congress that question whether or not that is effective as well. Yeah. And Tiffany, DeSantis's team made this last minute push to try to pick up some endorsements ahead of the uh, trip to Capitol Hill. This is what a source uh, close to a Republican House member told CNN about that quote. If the governor wants the endorsement, he should be picking up the phone and calling directly instead of having an aide doing the reach out. You know who calls for the Trump endorsement? Trump himself, unquote. Well, look, you know what? 
what's going on here is politics. Right. And it seems very, very early in the presidential primaries to be, cre- you know, taking up the airwaves with this. What I found in my new project with Rescuing the American Dream is that voters are tired of politics. They want to hear solutions. Americans are suffering right now. Um, majority of them, 70% in our survey, agree that America is on the wrong track. And their top three, number one, government, big government and politics. Mm-hmm. Um, no one's talking about solutions to help the American people. I want to give the microphone to the American people. I'm excited about the work we are doing. That's what should be dominating the airwaves right now. You know, in the midterm election, an historically high percentage of people who said the country was on the wrong track or said the economy was in bad shape or said they disapproved of Joe Biden still voted for Democrats anyway because they view the alternative as unacceptable to a degree that we have never seen before. Uh, in exit polling. And that is kind of the challenge that Republicans are rolling toward in 2024. People are dissatisfied with things, the way things are going in the country. But there are a lot of voters who believe that putting Trump back in the White House is kind of an existential risk to American democracy. And the way DeSantis has chosen to try to beat him Mm-hmm. By trying to squeeze, you know, I have this image in my head of the Republican race being this big interstate highway. You have Trump rumbling down the right lane at 70 miles an hour. In a huge and, Mack yeah, truck. In, right, in a Mack truck. <laughs> yeah. And then you've got like a center right lane, a center lane, a center left lane that really isn't that crowded. And Ron DeSantis is trying to pass him on the right shoulder, yeah. like in like the six inches before the guardrail. And it kind of raises the question. I think part of the problem he's having you saw that donor in Florida, that Republican mega donor, said, look, I was Ron DeSantis because I thought he could win back the suburbs of Michigan, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. If he's banning books, banning abortion, fighting with Disney, maybe he can't do that. Mm. So in some ways, the, the strategy that he's pursuing both creates the problem that Republicans had in 22 if he does win and drains away some of the support he would need to actually get past Trump. And Ashley, you know, what's interesting about that is also is I've met Democrats in liberal Democrats in Florida who voted for DeSantis. Mm-hmm. I mean, he won re-election with almost 60 percent of the vote. And one of the reasons was people perceived him as a good governor. They liked what he did, you know, after storms. They, they liked. And the impression that the national audience is getting is somebody focused on these culture wars that that the voters in Florida that I had talked to, liberal Democrats, like I said, did not have. Yeah, I mean, I think DeSantis had such a large margin of victory this past election cycle because of also his opponent. I would say that a lot of people didn't really favor Charlie Chris. Charlie Chris. Yeah. I, I still think, though, people in Florida did like the way DeSantis governed during COVID, keeping things open. But what DeSantis is also doing is playing to the base that still supports Trump mm-hmm. um, with the book bans, with mm-hmm. silently signing a six-week abortion ban. These are all issues that play to an extreme right of the Republican Party. What Trump is trying to do, though, is he knows DeSantis is his stiffest competition, whether announced or not announced. And he's actually playing good politics. He's picking up the phone. We call it call time when you're organizing. You're talking to people. You're saying a politician needs support and it needs voters. So you better talk to them. You better ask them for what you need. And DeSantis is you know, saying, oh, maybe I don't need these Republican lawmakers. But at some point, you're going to need to announce. And at some point, you're going to have to have momentum. And he better hope it's not too late. So, Tiffany, you ran for uh, you ran for Senate uh, in Washington state. And, and uh, you have this uh, new group that you're starting. And one of the things you're doing is you're trying to get more outsiders. You're an outsider. You've never been elected to anything before um, to, to run for office. Why is that important, do you think? Well, I think it's important because life is a great teacher. And we need people who have unique life experiences in in the halls of Congress. Um, 
career politicians aren't the future of our country. Um, that's evidence in our polling. That's evidence, again, big government and politics. The American people are tired of hearing about it when they are suffering, when they're trying to put food on the table and gas in their car, when they're trying to ensure that their children have a good quality education. I'm a mom of three boys. I've seen our education slip um, in Washington state. So look, we need to ensure that we are giving the American people a voice. That's what's unique about my survey is it's not a top down. DC is so top down. We mm -hmm. like to tell the American people what that, what our ideas are and get their opinion. What we did in the surveys, we asked them what their beliefs are what their hopes and their fears are. And I think that's important going forward into this next cycle. And, and uh, you know, one of the things that, that when I'm hearing about this, I, I always think that's what, that's what people say <laughs> when they're surveyed, just like they, they want term limits. And then they ultimately go and they vote for the incumbent all the time, you know. Right. Now, and look, I mean, when it comes to some of the concerns among people, they're also going to be focused on what's causing them immediate stress, you right. know, whether it be immediate economic stress, yeah. whether it be high prices as well. People are, con are concerned about what's affecting them day to day. So, you know, often when you hear sort of things being proposed that may be either long term and effective uh, or sort of sprawling ideas that people may not digest as improving their lives on a day to day basis. That's where some of that frustration can come into. Thanks one and all for being here. Appreciate it. Still ahead, a new warning about flying just as the summer travels about to heat up. Who and what is the call? Stay with us. In our money lead, some U.S. aviation leaders warned lawmakers today that the nationwide pilot shortage is about to get worse, which would, of course, lead to fewer flight options and higher fare prices. But not all aviation officials see eye to eye on how to solve this problem. Some say there isn't really a pilot shortage. So who's right? CNN's Pete Montines at Reagan National Airport outside D.C. Pete, why the disconnect and what are some of the proposed solutions the airline industry might be looking at? Well, Jake, the alarm bells here are really getting louder about the commercial airline pilot shortage. And the head of the Regional Airline Association that represents those smaller airlines that operate flights between big hubs and small cities said today on Capitol Hill that in the next 15 years, 50% of all commercial airline pilots will be forced to retire. Here is what she says that means to you. More delays and cancellations, fewer flights. In fact, some cities losing service entirely. There are some controversial ideas now that are emerging, changing the 1,500-hour rule. That's the rule that is the base leg for pilots coming in to the airlines and also maybe changing the retirement age, upping it from the mandatory 65-year retirement to 67. We will see as this develops, Jake. The big thing here is that everyone industry-wide agrees there are challenges, but there's a bit of a disconnect on what they say should be done here. And the top airline pilot union says that really this is a training backlog and there is no pilot shortage. Listen. Help is around the corner. Pilots are training as fast as they can. So we do need to get, as we said previously, Keep outreach, get more people involved in this, more diverse backgrounds, but the pilot supply is good. Some say there is no pilot shortage, just a pay shortage. Regional airlines starting pay averages $100,000 for pilots. Bonuses can exceed $125,000. 500 jets are parked. Pay hasn't solved this. We need better career access. 
The bottom line here, Jake, is it's a great time to learn to fly, especially for young people. The under 30 core at the commercial airlines, they represent only about 8% of all airline pilots right now. So it's a good time to get into the industry to try and solve this pilot shortage, whether or not you agree there is one or not. <laughs> Pete Montine, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Just in, a potential whistleblower alleges mishandling and political interference in the Hunter Biden investigation. What are sources telling CNN? That's next. Just into our politics lead, an IRS special agent claims to have evidence about alleged mishandling and alleged political interference in the ongoing criminal investigation into President Biden's son, Hunter Biden. CNN's Sarah Murray's on Capitol Hill for us. Uh, Sarah, this IRS agent you tell us now wants whistleblower protections to share his information with Congress? That's right. You know, his attorney wrote a letter to some Republican and Democratic members of Congress seeking these whistleblower protections and saying his client, who, as you point out, is an IRS agent, has information to share about alleged mishandling of the Hunter Biden criminal probe. That's, of course, been ongoing for a couple of years. It's being overseen by a U.S. attorney in Delaware. And the letter doesn't get into a ton of specifics, probably because this person does not have these whistleblower protections yet. It suggests that this person could contradict information a senior political appointee shared in testimony before Congress. It doesn't say who that is. It suggests there's some political interference in the decision-making that's going on in this criminal investigation. But again, not getting into a lot of specifics there. Obviously, this is something that members, especially Republican members of Congress, would be very eager to obtain this information. So we're waiting to see what the next steps are and if they are able to get information, get testimony from this IRS agent. We've reached out to the IRS as well as the U.S. Attorney in Delaware for comment, both declined to comment, as did a spokesperson for Hunter Biden, Jake. All right, Sarah Murray on Capitol Hill uh, with a breaking and evolving news story. Thank you so much. In the national lead, Today, the family of Tyree Nichols filed a $550 million lawsuit against the city of Memphis, its police department, and officers who brutally punched and kicked the 29-year-old black man back in January. Nichols died three days later from those injuries. CNN's Alex Marquardt is in for Wolf Blitzer. He's in the Situation Room. And Alex, you're going to be talking to the family's attorney, Benjamin Crump. That is right, Jake. Uh, An important uh, interview with Ben Crump, who, as you noted, uh, is representing the family in that $550 million lawsuit against uh, members of the Scorpion unit, that infamous Memphis uh, police unit, that lawsuit also against the city of Memphis for the beating and killing uh, of Nichols back in January. And Jake Crump also represents Ralph Yarl, the 16-year-old black teenager who was shot uh, by 84-year-old Andrew Lester. Uh, We'll be speaking to him about that case, particularly because Lester pled not guilty today. Uh, And then Jake Uh, We are also going to be getting a report from our colleagues Dana Bash and Wolf Blitzer, who are on the ground in Warsaw uh, for the 80th anniversary of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, which, of course, saw young uh, Jewish residents uh, taking up arms against uh, Nazi occupiers in 1943. So all of that coming up in just a short time in the Situation Room. All right, Alex, thank you so much. We'll look out for that in just a few minutes in the Sit Room. Coming up, uh, 12 years since a powerful earthquake and tsunami caused one of the worst nuclear disasters in the world. New radioactive fears at Fukushima this time are man-made. In our world lead, in just a few weeks, the government of Japan plans to dump 1.2 million tons of wastewater into the Pacific Ocean, wastewater that was contaminated during the Fukushima nuclear power plant disaster in 2011. Now, the water 
has been treated, and Japan's prime minister insists it is safe to release into the ocean. CNN's Mark Stewart now gets rare access to the plant ahead of the dump and talks to fishermen who are condemning this decision. It's just after nine in the morning. The crew of this ship is back in port at the Onahama fishing village in Fukushima, Japan. Kinzaburo Shiga is a third-generation fisherman starting at elementary school, going on trips with his father. He told me he's happy on the boat, but he faces challenges. His catch is tested for radiation. That's because the port is around 40 miles from the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. In 2011, there was a meltdown here after a catastrophic earthquake and tsunami. For six years, he couldn't fish, told to stay off the water. When he heard he couldn't fish, he was sad, disappointed the ocean was off limits. Twelve years later, fishermen faced yet another challenge. Treated wastewater that accumulated inside the plant will soon be released into the ocean, a threat to their reputation and way of life. He says the decision made his blood boil. He wonders why the government made the decision without the consent of the fishermen. At the time, the prime minister said it had to be done to decommission the plant. We wanted to see the plant for ourselves, and we were allowed to after agreeing to a strict safety protocol. This is as close as we can get to reactors one through four. The cleanup work here will take at least 20 more years. We also saw a lab where fish are tested and lots of construction on the water treatment facility. Let me show you the tanks behind me, row after row, enough to fill about 500 Olympic swimming pools. The treated water will be let go gradually through a tunnel that will take it offshore and then eventually into the ocean. According to the plant's operator, Tokyo Electric Power Company, the water has been treated by taking out most of the radioactive particles. It's then diluted with seawater, taking it to a level much lower than the World Health Organization's clean drinking water standard. An official from the utility told us he recognizes there's distrust because of the past, but they're listening to concerns. He knows not everyone will accept their plan, but points out the support they're getting from third parties, such as the International Atomic Energy Agency. Still, neighboring countries have expressed concern. Is there a public health risk by releasing this water? Yes, there is a public health risk. Um, it's relatively low, but the, ex- the risk exists. I think that they should store the water so that it decays naturally. While other options were considered, this was seen as the best plan as tanks near capacity. Japan's Pacific coast has been a point of pride and promise for fishermen like Kinzaburo. He says he doesn't know what will happen, but hopes leaders won't work against the fishermen. The water release is expected to begin by this summer, bringing with it more years of anxiety and uncertainty. 
And Jake, despite everything that has happened, Japan still views nuclear power as part of its future. It's seen as a way to be energy independent. It's viewed as a greener energy source. And then on the topic of safety, the prime minister feels the next generation of plants will be safer, Jake. All right. Our thanks to Mark Stewart for that report. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead once you get your podcast all two hours just sitting there like a big Big plate of ribs at Mama Dips in Chapel Hill. Our coverage continues now with Alex Marquardt. He's in for Wolf Blitzer in a place right next door. I like to call the Situation Room. We'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.